Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, we're glad for you all to be joining us today. Um, if you're coming in on the Zoom app, uh, please, we want you to uh, today enter any of the questions that you have, uh, either on the topic we're going to discuss today or elsewhere. Um, you can enter that with the Q&A button there in the Zoom app. Or if you're coming in on Scott's Facebook page, just enter it in the comment section. I'll be monitoring that uh, and we'll get to your questions or comments as we're moving through the show. Um, today, I am the host, um, kind of taking the place of Drew. He had some things um, that have come up and uh, in the near future, we'll be leaving our show, um, going to work with uh, the local prison where he's at, or one of the state prisons in the local area where he's at. So we're thankful for that opportunity. But I'm Jonathan, I'm hosting for you all today. Uh, let's bring in the panelists. We've got Stephen Rouse up in the Harrisburg area. How are you doing, Stephen? Hey, doing well. Good to see you guys. Yeah, good to see you too. And Scott Smelser here in Gettysburg with me. How are you, Scott? I'm doing fine, Jonathan. How are you today? I'm doing well. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. Scott, do you want to get us um, kind of going in our discussion? Yes, we are going to be talking about Ecclesiastes today, and Jonathan's going to start us into the text of that in just a minute. Uh, but first, we're going to have Stephen talk to us a little bit about the wisdom literature a bit as a whole, and kind of some of the contrasts that we see between uh, in the viewpoint of the wisdom literature that I think is helpful. Yeah, it's really interesting when we think about the uh, wisdom literature. Uh, I want to click through a slide deck I've got here real quick. I'm going to share my screen. I'll do this. I'll start screen share. Okay, can you guys see this okay? Yep. All right, so the wisdom literature in our Old Testaments are these five books. They're sometimes called the poetry books. Um, they're right in the middle of the Old Testament between the historical books or the law and history and then the prophets in the latter half. And um, in the Jewish Bible, it's kind of interesting that these books come up in the writings, uh, that there's a different way that they order their Bibles. We'll talk more about that some other time. But uh, of these five books, um, we have the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, uh, and Job. Um, and some of these were read at the different Jewish festivals. But what we want to talk about here is these five books and how all five are important to each other. And there's a balance that happens in the wisdom literature that we don't want to miss. Uh, so if you just read the book of Proverbs, what sort of things does Proverbs tell us? Uh, it's kind of life advice. You want to know the wise way of doing something? Here it is. You want to know the foolish way of doing something? Here it is. Yeah. And so There's consequences. If you ignore God and ignore your parents, your father and your mother, and you choose paths of darkness and foolishness, you reap the consequences. And if you listen to wisdom, if you acquire wisdom, it will bring you great benefits. Yes. So uh, just taking, for instance, Proverbs 12, 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. Um, that's a really helpful principle. If you live by that principle, you'll be blessed. But as a proverb, is that always true? Is an evil man always ensnared by the transgression of his lips? And do the righteous always escape from trouble? No. Sometimes no. lies prevail. That's right. Sometimes, and so, sometimes OJ gets acquitted and then writes a book. If, if I did it. 
<laughs> there you go for a modern day example. Um, so it's important that we realize they are proverbs, not promises. Uh, they're principles for wise, righteous living. And so on the other side of things, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. And you've got uh, in this book, raw observations about life. <laughs> Um, he's going to say things like, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, some people would call it pessimistic, some people would call it realistic, but either way, you, you've got a set of observations that are, yeah, that's generally true about life. So here's an interesting thing. If all you ever read was Proverbs and you're trying to live a righteous life, what's going to happen as you live your life and you're trying to live out Proverbs? You might show up at Job's house, what's left of it, and tell him, wow, obviously you've been bad. Yeah, that's right. You'd probably be easily... You'd probably be easily disappointed um, if you're, you know, expecting this to always be true, always work in this way, almost kind of like you're in a, um, like a lab experiment type of uh, situation with all the controls. Life doesn't work that way. Life isn't full of all kinds of controlled environments. There are all kinds of different things that affect the outcome. And so um, it could be pretty disappointing whenever things don't work out the way that you expect that they should. Yeah, that's right. And on the other extreme, if all you ever read was Ecclesiastes, how would your outlook be about life? You might be Job sitting there with the pot shirt saying, I knew it was coming. <laughs> Always does. <laughs> yes. So uh, this is Eeyore's book of the Bible. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, so... Well, which one's right, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? Well, they're both right. And the helpful thing in the wisdom literature is the wisdom books help to balance each other out. On one extreme, you got Proverbs, which are is the ideal. On the other side, you've got Ecclesiastes, which is the raw and the real. But in between, you've got this idea of the tension of trying to trust God, uh, trying to live a Proverbs life in an Ecclesiastes world. And Psalm 73 is a helpful example of this, where Asaph is looking around and he's frustrated because he's trying to live righteous, but it seems like the wicked are the ones who are prospering. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and unwashed my hands in innocence for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And that's how we feel sometimes is we, we've read the book of Proverbs and we're like, hey, what gives? I'm trying to live righteous and, and not everything is working out. And so that's where Ecclesiastes comes in and shows us it's not always going to happen the way Proverbs tells us. But that doesn't mean we abandon Proverbs. It means that we still need to remember our creator in the days of our youth and seek his wisdom, but recognize that in this broken, fallen world, it's not always going to go that way. Scott? And th there's, there's a lot of realism in Proverbs as well, because the Proverbs are what generally works. But if we'll compare it to driving, um, if you drive carefully, 
pay attention to the laws, stop stop signs, don't text, you know, use your blinker, drive defensively. What's going to happen 99.9999999% of the time that you drive? Be fine. safe. Yeah. Does it mean there will never be an accident? No. No. And how memorable are the accidents over the many, many times that we navigated safely? Much more memorable. <laughs> That's right. And so Proverbs is focused on what generally goes, the way things generally go if you live by these principles. Ecclesiastes is pretty focused in on the exceptions and saying, this is, uh, this really does happen. You can be super wise and super righteous and still die young. Yeah. I was going, accidents that happen there. Mm -hmm. I was going 35 miles per hour. I had my seatbelt on. I'd adjusted my mirrors beforehand, you know, and I got T-boned by a drunk driver. Right. Exactly. And so it's important for us to read all of the wisdom literature together. That's really the main point of this is we need all of it to give us the right attitude toward God. Uh, we're still living in God's world. He's still in control, even though the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong every time. Uh, and all of these books point us to God. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes says when it all is said and done, you need to fear God and keep his commandments. None of these books say, well, life is what it is and just don't worry about it. No, all of these books point us to God and his wisdom, um, but they help balance each other out as far as perspective goes. Jonathan? Yeah, another thing, just to um, go on the other side of the coin where Scott said that, that Proverbs also contains a lot of realism um, and really similar to the same type of thing that Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes, there are some really surprising sections in Ecclesiastes for me of where like you're talking about all this vanity, all this emptiness, all this, you know, just futile nature of life. But then there's, you know, the admonition to live life and enjoy it, you know, kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, what's the point in that? And again, it, they're, they're balanced within themselves. While it's more heavily kind of the raw observations of life, like you said in Ecclesiastes, still brings up God and the blessings of life. And there are still plenty of good things in life to enjoy. Um, but it's kind of hard to talk about all of that in 45 minutes. So um, like what you said, read it all, take it all, balance it all, and get a more accurate picture in all these things. Yeah, and we've got a comment here in the chat window. Uh, Patrick says, proverb, short popular saying, usually unknown in ancient origin, expresses effectively some commonplace truth, useful thought. Uh, most proverbs are absolute. The word proverb does not mean things that are only true most of the time. For example, you would agree Proverbs 14, 5a, 6, 16 through 19, 13, 24 are absolutes. I don't remember which those are. Uh, you would have some of both in there. You'd have some things that are relative, like a soft answer turns away wrath. Uh, usually it does. Occasionally it might not. Uh, on the other hand here, uh, somebody read 14, 5a. Yeah, I've got the... I've got these pulled up. 14.5a says, a faithful witness does not lie. Oh, there you go. Latter half, but a false witness breathes out lies. Right. So yeah. that's that's right, as you want to do that. 6.16 6, through 19, I believe the, you know, the six things that the Lord hates. Those are always true. Yeah, and 13.24 um, about if you love your child, I'll do this for your child, et cetera. All right, very good. Right. All right, continuing. Anything more there on the introductory part? No, I'm good. All right, let's get into the text, and Jonathan's going to take us through that. But first, uh, Stephen is not the only one who 
who has a slide prepared for Ecclesiastes. Oh. I would I would like to share mine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. We seem to have a misunderstanding of, so vain. <laughs> of the vanities that we were so talking vain. about. Perhaps I misunderstood. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. And if yeah. anybody for anybody uh, that might be not incited that's listening. It's a picture of a bunch of vanities in a sign that says just vanities, wholesale and retail. Okay, go ahead, John. Yeah. So um, getting into the text in Ecclesiastes, remembering all that kind of background uh, and keeping the balance here, Ecclesiastes really, really starts right in the thick of things. There's He doesn't pull any punches in the first few sentences of the point of the book and what he's trying to say. So in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, so just some more inter introductory things to Ecclesiastes. My understanding of how Ecclesiastes is set up, it's kind of set up like there's this narrator that has got this book of wisdom from the preacher, and he's citing this book of wisdom, citing this, this source, the preacher, uh, in the wisdom. And at the beginning and at the end, you kind of have the narrator's take on what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. So he mentions the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Um, we're not going to spend our time talking about this. If some of our viewers would like to talk more about the authorship of Ecclesiastes, we'd be happy to talk more um, with you all. Um, you can send us messages on BibleQuest.tv, but we'll just assume for our purposes that this is King Solomon, the son of David, the direct son of David, the next king after him. Um, and so he starts off, the words of the preacher summarized in verse two is vanity. And what does vanity mean other than uh, sink? It's <laughs> a wood cabinet with the sink in it. Sorry. Uh, emptiness, pointlessness. Futility. Yeah, futility, emptiness, um, you know, nothingness. It's just kind of meaningless, has no substance, that kind of thing. And what is that a conclusion about, according to the preacher? What is included in that definition of vanity? Everything. Everything yeah. is vanity. What's the point of anything? All of it is vanity, which is really surprising because we'll see Ecclesiastes is really kind of set up from the preacher's perspective, almost kind of like an experiment. Let's look at life and just kind of examine life and see what life is all about. But we're going to maintain this, this scope, this um, smaller scope of kind of our controlled environment to examine this. And he'll get to that in um, verse three, that this under the sun idea will start showing up in Ecclesiastes. So we're going to try to cut out spirituality, anything beyond this world. We're just going to look at the things in this world. What happens with them? What are those like? And his conclusion at the beginning is it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. That's surprising whenever you look at things, because generally, at least how I uh, and most people often think about it, the things that really have substance are the physical things, whereas the more spiritual, ethereal things, those don't have as much substance. Those aren't as real or lasting, that kind of thing, because we can see and feel and touch all the things that are in the world. Um, but the writer here says they're emptiness, they're vanity. Um, and that can be really depressing whenever you think about that. Um, like whenever you learn that everything is just vanity, um, it's really hard to think about. And he'll get to more specifics and more practical types of things here. But I wanna share before we get into the next section and kind of observe some of his more observations that got him to that conclusion. There was a, um, a metaphor that I heard one time from Gary Fisher. You guys know Gary Fisher and some of our viewers probably know Gary Fisher. Um, 
really, really good example, I think, that, that illustrates this idea of, you know, being depressed for a purpose and for a reason. Um, it has value in that. And that's one thing that Ecclesiastes tries to get across. So imagine that you, uh, you know, you have your house and your oven goes out in your house. You got to go get a new oven because you have to cook your food somehow. So you go to the appliance store and you find a box and the box on the appliance says refrigerator on it. And you buy that appliance and you bring it back home and you unbox it, plug it in, put your food in it to cook. And what's going to happen? It's not getting any warmer. Yeah, yeah it's not going to get warmer. It's not going to cook the food. So you get angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get angry with the refrigerator and you start maybe twisting the dials, messing with the settings, trying to change it so that it'll work. Still not cooking your food. You start kicking it and punching it and shaking it and all this kind of stuff. Starting to look pretty ridiculous, but it's still not cooking your food. And I come over to your house and realize that you're arguing with this refrigerator. And, you know, I say, you know, Scott, I'm sorry to tell you that refrigerator is never going to cook your food. Am I trying to do you a favor or am I trying to hurt you and telling you that? I think that was pretty offensive and judgmental. Yeah. And you uh, can see it like that, right? Yeah. It's, I'm having enough trouble with my fridge without you telling me that it's not going to do what I want it to do. Right. Yeah. And you could see it like that, or you could realize I'm really trying to help you. I want you to realize what the refrigerator is designed for, and maybe you'll get to use it for what it's designed for. It's not supposed to cook your food, but it's pretty good at preserving your food. You right. need an oven. You need something different. And that's really kind of how Ecclesiastes is. If you try to get out of life, fulfillment, joy, lasting pleasure, all of that kind, those types of things, you're not going to get it. And so quit trying. You can get benefit from life. You can let it preserve your food, but don't make it try to cook your food. And I think that general observation of just getting that out of the way at the very beginning in Ecclesiastes is really helpful. Realize this is vanity. We'll talk about more specifically why, but realize life is vanity. It's emptiness. You need something else. Go ahead, Scott. As you said that, it became very vivid because everything that brings us joy in this world, you're going to lose. You know, you don't get to keep your money. You're not going to get to keep your health. You're not going to get to live with your wife forever. You're not, it's, you know, you're going to end up a widow or she's going to be a widower. You know, we don't get to keep the things that are here. And so if that's all we've got, yeah, destined for frustration. Yeah, I mean, that's chapter two, right? It is a great experiment where he, he he's testing himself with all kinds of pleasure and things that do have some value. I mean, in the same book, he's going to say two are better than one. If you lie down alone, you're not going to keep warm. A threefold strand is not quickly broken. Like there's value in companionship and there's value in marriage and there's value in friendship. But don't let that be the end all be all of your life because it's going to fall apart at some point. And so again, like Jonathan mentioned earlier, there's a balance even within the book of some of these principles that we're not supposed to read Ecclesiastes and be like, oh, I'm going to live without hope for the rest of my life because every good thing I have is going to be taken from me at some point. Woe is me. That's not the point. The point is when we loosen our grip on the things of this world and aren't expecting them to be the things that fulfill us ultimately, and we are remembering our creator in the days of our youth, then it really helps us to actually enjoy the things in their right context, to see them as just a blessing given by God. And if it's enjoyed the way God has given it to us, then it's a good thing. But it, 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 when we put things in their proper perspective, it actually allows us to enjoy them more 
not enjoy them less, which is how people view Christianity is, oh, that takes all the fun out of life. No, it doesn't. It allows you to enjoy the good things of life in their proper context. And that's actually one of the points that he'll make at the end of chapter two as well. Yeah. Scott, go ahead. I was going to make one quick point and then ask you to take us through some more of the text. Uh, but yeah, it's like if you go on a vacation, if you go on a trip, maybe you're going across the country for a week or two. Uh, it'd be nice to enjoy the trip. But if you view the campground or the hotel as your home forever, you're, or that's, that's not how it's going to work. Or, or the waitress that serves you the food and expecting that she's going to be around the rest of your life. That's not how that's going to work. Um, you take the trip for what it is. And, but it's not your final destination. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy some things along the way. But, you know, when you stop for gas, you shouldn't contact a realtor and start arranging to put down mortgage points in something and buy a house for the night. Yeah, yeah, good point. So he establishes that just first thing. Life is vanity. Let's get that out of the way. Now let's talk about more specifically why. So he starts really, really broad in chapter one, the preacher does, and just let's examine kind of the natural world and just see, is this true? Is there really vanity, emptiness, kind of futile repetition in the natural world? And there is. So starting in verse three, when do you guys want to read verse three through 11? You can read that. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Yeah, so he starts off again. Uh, if that's true, if it's vanity, if it's empty, if it's, if it's all futile, what advantage does man have in his work? And I think the answer to his rhetorical question, there is no profit. There is no residual lasting you know, value. Everything that's done here under the sun is kind of it's profitless when it's all said and done because at the end of it all, you're going to lose it all. And again, we'll mention again, he brings up this, this scope, limiting the field of view or under the sun. Never in the book does the writer say that you know, things beyond the sun are vain or empty. Um, or, or have no value in that kind of way. Um, but he brings that up under the sun here. So he illustrates it from a few different things. Starting in verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes. Um, what I noticed reading through this section, and you guys can make um, some comments on various different ones. Um, I'll, do, I'll do this one in a different one in verse four through seven. But the generation comes, generation goes. There's just a lot of movement happening in life, but not really any progress. Um, like when you think about it, if all that we have is here under the sun, why do we keep making more humans? 
if everyone's just going to die and then we're going to make some more humans then everyone's going to die and we're going to make some more humans and everyone's going to die it just happens over and over and over and over what's really the point you know have we really accomplished very much as different generations have come up and sure i guess i suppose like we have internet now where they didn't have that we have cars we have vehicles and things but humans are really kind of the same as they've always been um, they all still have the same failings. They all still make the same mistakes, maybe in just m newer and improved ways, but generations come and generations go. It just keeps cycling over and over. And then I also really like verse seven. There's the same point made through verse three through seven, but in verse seven, it's really, really clear to me, really vivid picture. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. I like thinking about, cause we live in the United States. So we've got a river that flows into one of the seas. The Mississippi river flows into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I looked up one time and I don't remember the exact number, so I'd probably exaggerate it, but it's a lot of water per second that goes from the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico. It's been doing that for a really long time. I don't know how long, but for a really, really long time. The Gulf of Mexico is still not full and it's not getting any more full and it's never going to fill up. And why is that? Well, because you've got the water cycle and then it, the water gets hot and it evaporates and then condensates in the clouds and the clouds go back over land and then it precipitates and then it goes back into the sea. And it's just this monotonous cycle over and over. All kinds of different areas of life are like that. Lots of movement, lots of motion, lots of things happening, but no real progress. And I think the writer's point in this section is that's how life works. You can do a whole lot of stuff. You can, you can try to fill your life with a lot of movement, a lot of motion, but you're, if you're just staying under the sun, you're not really gonna make lasting progress in you know, the whole scheme of your existence. Uh, do you guys have comments or thoughts about any of that? I have one comment on just like the idea, of, well, we do have the internet, that's new. Yes, there are, there are technologies that develop, but the behaviors tend to stay the same. Um, so, for example, every once in a while, you, we can become guilty of chronological snobbery where we think, because we know more, you know, all my grandparents grew up without indoor plumbing, therefore I'm smarter than them. No, that's not what that means. Um, you know, my great grandparents didn't have electricity, so I'm smarter than them. Or my dad didn't have a computer growing up. So that actually, I think, and a lot of times people in the past were knew more than a lot of people right now. But just to illustrate the technology, although we can do things quicker, that it hasn't solved man's problem, let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The people use the internet to commit adultery. Yeah. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Do people use the internet to bear false witness? Uh, thou shalt not steal. We've got a new kind of uh, problem there. Well, not so much a new, but a continued problem of identity theft. Yeah, so we've just we've got a way to do bad quicker. Yeah, it just kind of amplifies the good and the bad that are already yep. there. Right. And like you mentioned, automobile, Jonathan. You know, it, we're still traveling from point A to point B. We can do it faster, uh, more dangerously, perhaps. Uh, but uh, yeah it's all the same things just kind of amplified or in a different form. Something that someone pointed out to me about verse 11, just that there's not any lasting remembrance. This is a sobering analogy. Uh, I think it was in a classroom setting that the teacher said, you know, everybody raise your hand if you know the names of your parents. <laughs> of course, everybody's hand goes up. And then, okay, 
Hey, keep your hand up if you remember your grandparents' names. Okay, keep your hand up if you can name your great-grandparents. Yeah, just a name's hands start going down. Your great-great-grandparents. Your great-great-great-grandparents. And of course, at some point, there are no hands in the room left. And it just illustrates like, wow, this isn't just anybody. Like, this is someone who I owe my existence in part to. And I don't remember. I have no idea who they are. Like in a few generations, they have been forgotten by their own children. Yeah. And or their yeah, their great great grandchildren. And that's just a sobering thing to think about. I suspect that in I don't know, five, six, seven generations from now, I don't know if there's anybody on earth who will remember who I am. If the Lord allows the world to keep turning, like that's kind of a depressing thought when you think about it. That like we're here for a bit, but even our own families, now hopefully our influence is still lasting. Even if they don't remember my name, I hope that uh, there's a godly influence that continues through our families. Um, and I thank God for the godly influence that did start those generations back. Um, but wow, when he says there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after that, that's true. And we can, we can observe that and see that. And so it brings us to the question, what is going to last? Uh, the, the vanity of this world, like you illustrated earlier, Jonathan, should drive us to ask the why question and to search for something that offers more than what this world has. And really, I think that's, again, the, kind of the point and the motivation of Ecclesiastes is to get us to look beyond this world and deeper uh, so that we can find things that really last. It points us to the Lord. Right. And he also brings up in, in verse eight, before, before that, he talks about how the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. When you get in this monotonous kind of cycle and this emptiness, there's no satisfaction. Because like uh, illustrated like this, he'll talk about in chapter two, gaining wealth, gaining possessions as a form of trying to make you happy and joyful and fulfill yourself. But what happens? We'll just think practically. If you're all about, if your life is all about getting the next raise, when you finally get the next raise, what do you want? You've already spent it probably. Well, yeah. But what do you, <laughs> but what do you want after that? The next one. You want the next raise. And then you get that next raise. What do you want? You want the next race. And so always another one. You, you have to get higher and higher and higher. And you're just never satisfied with the things in this life because they don't really fill you up. Um, another uh, example of this, because you can have two kind of different reactions to that. When you realize something isn't filling you up, you can have two different reactions. One, you try to eat more of it to fill you up. Or two, you look for something different to eat to fill you up. So I, I don't know if this is actually true. Um, I've heard this for a long time and I've never actually researched the scientific truth behind it, but we'll just assume that it is because I think it illustrates the point. It's, I've heard that celery requires more calories to digest than it does that you actually get from eating the celery. So if that's true, you expend more energy eating the celery than you get from eating it. If you're really, really hungry and you get a big plate of celery and you eat all of the celery, what's going to happen? You're going to be more hungry than more hungry in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Yeah. You end up more hungry than when you started. And so you can think to yourself, well, I'm still hungry. I'm going to get an even bigger plate of celery. And then you eat that and you're even more hungry. You get a big salad bowl full of celery and you're just double fisting celery. It's not going to work. You're going to get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. One uh, that's really similar to that, that I know is actually true 
um, if you're ever stranded on a desert island, for our viewers, if that ever happens to you, here's some, here's some uh, survival advice. Don't drink the seawater because it looks like water. <laughs> oh, you think that it'll, that it'll, be, that it'll hydrate you. Island. Oh, yeah. Was my yeah, there you go. Yeah, don't do that, Stephen. Yeah, learn from Stephen. But Thank the, you. the sodium content <laughs> in the water is actually so high to where it'll actually dehydrate you more than it hydrates you. It's kind of weird to think about that you can get dehydrated drinking water. Um, but it'll happen um, with that. So one reaction is not getting full, keep eating more. The other reaction is not getting full, look for something different. If you realize the celery is not filling you up, maybe I should go and cook a steak and eat the steak instead. And that'll fix your problem. And that's the same way with life. Realize that it's not going to last. It's not going to fill you up. You need something different. That's where the writer is trying to get the, view, the readers to get to realize, get to somewhere, find something outside of this scope, outside of under the sun that will last. Go ahead, Steve. There's, there's a hymn uh, that was written by Adelaide Proctor uh, decades and decades ago, um, but it, it captures, I think, some of the point that Ecclesiastes is pointing us to, and, and it actually is a hymn that gives thanks for our pain, and there's one of the verses of the hymn that says, yeah. it's, a, it's a prayer speaking to God. It says, I thank thee more that all our joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. And that is a profound way of saying these eternal truths that we find in Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Lord, that there are still hard things here that help us to realize that earth's bliss is not the focus of this life. It, it, it lasts for just a moment and then it's gone. And so earth's bliss becomes our guide. We enjoy these things, but they point us to something more instead of becoming our chain, as the song says. And that's how many people live their lives is they become chained to the pleasures of this world thinking this is where I'm gonna get my fulfillment. And they never break free of that cycle and it, it just can destroy us. And so I really like that hymn. It's called, My God, I Thank You Who Have Made. If you ever get a chance to uh, look it up online, there's some very thought-provoking lines in that song. I'd like to bring up Romans 8.20, and then uh, we'll get back to the Ecclesiastes text there. But look at this, Romans 8.20. Creation was subjected to futility. Futility here very much along the same idea as vanity. When was creation subjected to futility? Genesis 3, curses. With thorns, thistles, pain, death. Not willingly did Adam and Eve say, ooh, I would like more pain and thorns and thistles. No. It wasn't something they wanted, but who caused it? I mean, their sin caused it, but who caused the curses in response to their sin? God. Because of him who subjected it, when God said, now this is going to happen, you're going to have this futility, this futility, this vanity. Why did he do it? In hope. In hope. In hope what? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And just a simple way to illustrate that is the prodigal son. Uh, he, he want, you know, we talked about when you get all the money, right? How many, how many times have you heard about somebody winning the lottery 
and then it does not go well. You know, they thought, oh, if I just win the lottery, and then they did, and it's a disaster. Well, he kind of wins the lottery. He gets dad's money and he goes off, but then he spends it all. There's all privilege, no responsibility, and that doesn't work. That's not Proverbs. That's not how it works. And then what happens? Utility vanity happens. Famine happens. And when he gets to the point that he's a Jewish boy jealous of pigs, he came to himself. It benefited him to suffer from that and it helped him to set me free from corruption. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get back there. Uh, Jonathan, continue with us in our text here in Ecclesiastes. Yeah. So after establishing those things and kind of looking generally at life, he's going to get specific. Let's look at some specific practical things in human life that are also vain, that also don't kind of have lasting benefits. So I'll read verse 12 through the end of the chapter. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I have said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has also has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much, vex much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he starts off, says he's king in Jerusalem. And as king, he's got all of the resources really that he needs. He's kind of the most powerful person um, that's around. So he's got all of the resources. He's got all of the wisdom. And he's setting his heart, setting his mind to seek out by wisdom the things in life. And again, his conclusion is it's vanity. And then he adds in a different phrase here that he'll use throughout the book, striving after the wind. Um, I don't know if you guys, this is just a visual that helps me um, to think about it. If, if you guys or any of our viewers remember um, the first time that you noticed that you could see your breath in the cold. Um, I can remember that. It's a really, I don't know why that's a vivid memory for me, but I remember that. I was four years old going to catch the bus for school, walking up my parents' street, and it was, you know, getting into October, November, colder weather, and you breathe out and you can see your breath. And I'm a four-year-old kid. That's pretty cool <laughs> to a four-year-old kid, like almost like a dragon breath or frost breath or something like that. My imagination is doing all this stuff. Really cool. And so my reaction is, oh, that's really cool in front of me. Try to grab it. And it just slips right through my fingers. <laughs> it, you can see it there. It looks really impressive, but it just goes right through your fingers. And that's kind of the illustration that he uses about life. You can see it. It looks really impressive, but it just goes right through your fingers. There's no lasting substance to it. And then he starts exploring one specific area. He'll, he'll break it down into various different specific areas in chapter two, but he's got one starting out here in chapter one. What's he trying to find fulfillment, joy, value in at the end of chapter one kind of like wisdom oh. itself mm -hmm. in verse 16 yeah wisdom itself knowledge just learning things knowing more getting smarter that type of thing he'll make the distinction in chapter two which we're not going to get to in our in our class today but i want to bring this up he'll make the distinction in chapter two it's better to be wise than to be foolish you get fewer bruises in life if you're wise or knowledgeable than you would if you're foolish and stupid so if you have the chance to choose choose wisdom that's better but ultimately when it's all said and done what does gaining more knowledge and wisdom do for you under the sun 
gives you more things to worry about. I mean, I think it's kind of like the opposite of this where we get the idea of like ignorance is bliss. Um, like the older you get, the more stuff you learn about, the more you're worried <laughs> and the more you're uh, scared about different things. Uh, when you're a kid and you don't know what's going on, like, man, life is good. And uh, you're excited about this and that. But uh, when wisdom comes and when more knowledge comes, generally speaking, you're more worried. You're uh, at increased sorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Scott. I remember hearing one time that judges that have to hear like child abuse cases, after a while, they'll give them a break and let them cycle through and do something else or something. I'm not sure if that's the case or not, but if it is, I can understand why it would be. I would really not like to know all the evil that is done in the state of Pennsylvania day by day and week by week, year by year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think verse 15 really kind of is, is a vivid picture to think about. You learn a lot, you get more knowledge, you get more wisdom, and you start to realize that there are some crooked things that aren't going to be made straight. And the things that are lacking, you can't even count them. In other words, the things that are wrong in this world, they're innumerable <laughs> almost. And you could think on the surface level, if I could just learn enough, if I could just know enough, then I could fix it but you're not going to be able to for thousands and thousands of years, the world has been turning and it still has lots of crooked things, lots of things that are lacking that can't be counted. And they're still around still today. And there have been people that have made impacts on that. There have been good people that have made valuable changes, but there are still a lot of crooked things in the world and a lot of crooked people in the world. And so at the end in verse 18, he starts to realize the more you learn, the harder it actually gets. It's almost kind of like, I wish you just wouldn't tell me. The problem is kind of like what Scott said. It'd be better to just not know and just kind of, you know, almost live in my bubble um, and, and not be affected by all the things that are happening, which can't happen in the world. You're going to see the evil and the wrong in the world. But if you stake your whole life, if you stake the value of your life on learning and getting smarter and gaining more knowledge, you're going to find out that you're going to be very disappointed in this life <clears throat> by all the things that are broken and wrong. You guys have comments uh, or thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it's really a sobering thing that oftentimes by the time we learn what is really important, we've passed a lot of the stages in life where that would have been really useful and really helpful. Yeah. And like you get older and you're like, oh, I finally realize what's really important. And now I've wasted decades of my life living for what's not important. And so Ecclesiastes, as depressing as it sounds, I mean, in some ways it's a big shortcut to say, hey, listen, yeah. hey guys, I've been king in Jerusalem. I, I've been there, done that. Yeah. I have tried everything there is to try to figure out like, what is the best way to live your life and get pleasure out of it? And I tried everything I could think of and I had access to everything. And guys, I'll just tell you at the beginning, it's not gonna fill you up. It's not going to satisfy. What a blessing. I don't, and I don't have to go down every road and retrace every path and to figure out, you know what? He was right. And I had to spend 40 years or I could have just read Ecclesiastes and known like, and again, there, there's life experience that, that helps reinforce these things. But biblical wisdom gives us such an advantage if we'll trust God on this, if we'll trust uh, what he's teaching us through the experience of these real people. Um, what a blessing, what an advantage. 
to know from the get-go, these things really aren't going to satisfy. And so I'm going to put myself and put my focus on things that do matter. CJ makes a really good point. Um, He said that the evil tends to push us to God because he is light and we as humans want that light and hope. And that's really, uh, that's really Romans 8, 20 and 21, what we just saw. That's, that's really kind of one of the purposes of the broken world that we live in to push us to God, to bring us back to him and that kind of thing. And that should be the change. Um, I want to just read in the last uh, few minutes that we have, because ending on chapter one is really kind of like, oh man, <laughs> that's that's rough. But at the end of chapter two, he, he gets to one of his conclusions that really kind of surprises me. In Ecclesiastes chapter two and verse 24, he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So he makes the point really briefly here, which he'll get to at the end of the book, especially in chapter 12, but he makes the point, if you really want to enjoy life, realize what it is and serve God. The person who can really try and fulfill find fulfillment in life is the one who serves God. Even in the good things in life, like wisdom, wisdom is a good thing. You're not going to find lasting joy and fulfillment and pleasure if you're not serving God and you gain all the wisdom because you're going to see all the things that are broken with no answer. All the things are crooked and they can't be made straight. But if you're serving God, you realize God's in control. God will make it straight. I can't make it straight. God will. And all kinds of other examples of really, really good things that you think would have value But without God, they really don't. Um, Family. If your life is all about family, it's a huge blessing. My my wife and I are expecting our first child, and we're really excited for that. The reason why we're excited about that is because we serve God, because we realize that God has made that soul. We're made responsible for that soul here on this earth, and we get to teach them about God. And then once this life is over, we'll get to be with them forever and with God in heaven. But you cut God out of the equation, really, family— we're going to die. They're going to die. We're not going to be around. It's all going to be done. Um, And so the one that can really enjoy things in this world is the one who sees God in it all and worships him and serves him. And that's his conclusion in chapter 12. Also, the end of the matter is this fear God and keep his commandments. That's man's whole duty in Revelation chapter or Ecclesiastes 12. You guys have any other thoughts you want to bring up before we finish? I'm good. All right. Thank you guys for your discussion. Thank you for our audience um coming in and uh with your comments we actually got one more comment um here steven um from jim could you repeat the name of that hymn what was that hymn? oh yeah the hymn uh is called my god i thank you who have made it's by adelaide proctor um you might find an older version my god i think the who have made who has to made i think is the original uh, there's a version that we sing that is in the, the hymnal psalms hymns and spiritual songs Newer hymnal came out in 2012, I think. Um, but it's a, it's a great hymn. Uh, very, very good to, to look that up. All right. Thanks, Stephen. And thank you all for uh, our audience coming in, uh, listening in and participating. Again, uh, if you all have any comments or questions about what we talked about today or anything else that you want us to talk about uh, in the scriptures, you can submit that to BibleQuest.tv and we'll be happy to get to your questions and talk them through on our live show uh, next Tuesday. But we will see you all then, Lord willing. Have a good rest of your week.